Welcome to my new podcast, God and Cancel Culture. You're going to hear today a very important podcast that I put on the Strang Report. It has to do with how I experienced cancel culture, or at least should I say had a foreshadowing of cancel culture before the internet. This happened in the uh, 1980s. I tell the story of where a man who got mad at me because we took away his column actually said he was going to get people to boycott us. And I tell today how I dealt with it, how I felt because of it. I'm trying to get new listeners for God and Cancel Culture. Of course, you can hear these podcasts that apply on both the Strang Report and this new podcast. So help me by sharing this with others and also people who maybe are just surprised about this and think it's brand new. Well, it's not brand new as you'll hear in this very important podcast. Welcome to the Strang Report with Steve Strang on the Charisma Podcast Network. This episode was produced to discuss and address issues within our nation and around the world from a Christian worldview. Welcome back, everyone. In the 1980s, I was in my 30s. I was very involved in trying to build bridges between blacks and whites, mainly within Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And Charisma Magazine was only 10 or 12 years old at the time. And I had been writing editorials about racial reconciliation all the way back to high school in Lakeland, Florida, when I worked for the student newspaper. And that was the days they were integrating the schools here in Florida. I actually attended segregated schools for five years, and then they, I moved to the South when I was in the sixth grade, and they integrated grade by grade, and, and my class happened to be in 10th uh, or 11th grade. Interestingly, one of the first black students, Brenda Davis, in Lakeland High School, she's a solid Christian. We had a couple of classes together, and Years later, she actually worked for my company for a number of years, and it's just interesting how you form relationships. I had no idea when we were in high school that we would ever work together, but I was doing editorials. In fact, I have one of them framed in my office on the need for racial reconciliation. I wrote it when I was 18 years old, and years later when I did Charisma, when we started Charisma, and it grew, I felt it was important to cover Pentecostal black community, which was almost invisible as far as Christian journalism was concerned. You know, back in the day, there were magazines like Moody Monthly and Christian Herald. Christianity Today, you know, was a leading magazine back then and is now. And these magazines almost never covered the Christian community, you know, from the black perspective. And I remember one of the first cover stories we did was Fred Price. And when he passed away recently, I did a podcast, you know, reminiscing about him. We did an article, and I pulled out that article that ran in 1985 and read it. And, you know, his ministry, of course, exploded since then in a number of ways, including him buying the old Pepperdine University campus and building the Faith Dome. And But, you know, his basic philosophy, his television ministry— and so forth was pretty well set. And over the years, we became friends, and I consider him a great man of God. 
And my feeling was we wrote about him because he was a significant person in the Pentecostal charismatic world. And we wrote about a lot of people that were kind of up and comers back in that day. Uh, We would have been one of the first to write about T.D. Jakes a couple of years later. Uh, We wrote about Marilyn Hickey, I remember, the Happy Hunters. In fact, if you look at our covers over the years, it's the major leaders from Oral Roberts and Kenneth Hagin and Pat Robertson and, you know, on up until the present. And so I considered this covering the Pentecostal charismatic movement. You know, Pentecostalism came out of the black experience at Azusa Street in 1906. William Seymour, who led that three-year revival, was a black man. And it was significant in that day that it was totally integrated. In fact, some of the journalists of the day even wrote about it. You know, from Azusa Street, the Pentecostal experience and the fires of Azusa Street literally spread around the world. And, you know, kind of the worship style that Pentecostals embraced was sort of out of the black culture. If you go to a predominantly black church, even today, the worship style, shall we say, is very different from the Presbyterian or Episcopalian or, you know, other Protestant denominations. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying they're different. But in Pentecostalism, you know, people talk back to the preacher. He says something and they say, preach it, brother, or they say amen, or they'll say, praise the Lord. You know, the worship is very exuberant with hands raised. All of this came out of the black experience. And there are a lot of white Pentecostals that don't totally understand this. But it's one of the ways, certainly before the civil rights movement, in which black culture influenced the wider culture, in this case, in the church. And I sort of understood this. And I have been to many, many churches and predominantly, you know, black congregations I reached out and intentionally formed friendships with a lot of people. Ed Montgomery from Houston is one. I could see, cite many examples. Uh, he had me preach at his church one time. I'll tell you I felt entirely intimidated because I sort of, you know, I kind of gave a teaching what I felt the Lord gave me that day, but it was a great experience. Bishop uh, Philip Brooks in Detroit is also someone that I became very close friends with. And unfortunately, he died of COVID-19. And I actually dedicated one of the book that I wrote, God, Trump, and COVID-19, to his memory. I'm just giving you a little example of how I tried to build bridges. And we hired a number of writers and editors, you know, who happened to be black. We like to think that we hire people based on their qualifications, not on the color of their skin. But we were intentional that we needed to have some of our editors who came from that background so they sort of understood it. They also had a lot of contacts, of course. And over the years, we had a number of the bishops of the Church of God in Christ on the cover of Charisma. And what I like to say is that we wrote about people as leaders as if they were part of the mainstream, so to speak, and they just happened to be black. There are other times when we specifically focused on and celebrated the black experience. So we've had so many black musicians and singers and worship leaders, even up to the present. The June-July issue of 
charisma, the, the current issue as I'm recording this in June of 2021, is on gospel singer Tasha Cobbs Leonard. And she's had a lot of great songs, but especially her song, Breaking Every Chain. The headline says, she's still breaking chains. A close-up look at the woman who's hit Break Every Chain made Billboard's top gospel artist of the decade in 2020. So, you know, some of our editors, you know, pick that story. You know, we have a certain process we go through every month. And Adrian Gaines, who is one of our editors, I think Adrian's been with us about 20 years. She actually wrote the story. It's a great story, and you'll want to check it out if you haven't. But I'm just giving you examples of how we've celebrated certain things. And then there's other things that we have concerns in in the black community. I remember a number of years ago, we did a story on lynching and obviously how bad that is and how people responded and even the wounds that exist in the black community, you know, from that memory. So I'm just giving you a lay of the land and made a lot of new friends, got a lot of appreciation for what we did. There's a certain arm's distance that blacks and whites keep. Now, the people I'm talking about were not radical leftists. They weren't critical race theory kind of people. You know, these were men and women of God who loved Jesus as much or more than I do. Uh, who are part of the charismatic Pentecostal experience. There are people that we embrace, people who embraced us. In fact, one of my black preacher friends told me one time, he said, Steve, you're known as being different. And and he was telling me that I wasn't the typical white guy, I guess. Anyway, that's how I took it. Well, in the late 1980s, Jamie Buckingham, my late mentor, officially took on the editorship of Ministry Today magazine, our magazine for pastors. And I just kind of turned it over to him. He was brilliant. And the magazine had its greatest days under his editorship. And he picked different people to write columns on different things affecting ministry. And he had a friend. It was someone I did not know at the time. And he asked him to write column called The Black Experience. He felt that was very important, and we had it in the magazine one or two years. And as time passed, there was some decision that we needed to rotate columns or something like that. It was nothing really bad, but what I found out is that this man, whose name I frankly would have to look up, it doesn't come to mind. And and also, I want to tell the story without Uh, saying his name, because I have no interest in embarrassing him in any way. But he kind of felt like that was his, he was entitled to it. I found out later that within his circles, it was very important that he had a regular column in a so-called white magazine. Now, we would not think of us as being a white magazine, but, you know, in those circles, and he was highly offended that Jamie took his column away from him, and he was going around telling people that I was a racist. And the reason is, is that we took his column away from him, and we were somehow belittling a black man. Now, I was absolutely shocked. First of all, I wasn't that close to the decisions that were made. Second of all, I was in high gear trying to build bridges doing the kinds of things that we talked about, and I'm not doing it to brag. I'm just trying, I'm trying to be transparent and open and honest. And I had, in my life, never been called a racist. And 
you know, it's become almost a cliche. You know, someone says, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Well, nowadays, if you object to being called a racist, there are some people who say that proves you're a racist. And I don't agree with that at all. I was so upset. I actually visited two of the top respected leaders in the black community. You would recognize both of their names if I said it, but I want to tell the story anonymously. And, you know, I kind of told them what happened, and both of them told me not, kind of not to worry about it. Both of them knew me pretty well, and both of these high leaders kind of considered the guy kind of a nobody. And so it almost was like there was some kind of pecking order. And he was saying he was going to influence all his people, you know, all his friends to boycott charisma and blah, blah, blah. And I think I probably repeated that. And I guess they were just telling me that he really didn't have that much influence. And, you know, I talked about it to some of my friends. And I finally figured out that he wanted to call me a really bad name. And he could have called me, well, I don't want to say any bad names, but you know what I'm saying. And that to him, calling someone a racist was the worst thing he could call me. Now, the thing kind of blew over. It was never a big controversy. This was the de- in the days before social media. And there was a reconciliation meeting called the Memphis Miracle. And I'd have to look when it was. I think it was in the early 90s. It was in Memphis, Tennessee. It was a beautiful experience. I was there. This man was there. And he came up to me and hugged my neck and, you know, wanted to make sure that things were right between us. And, and I told him they were. I don't remember if he literally, you know, apologized for calling me a racist. It's been a long time. I haven't had any dealings with him in the last few years. You know, and I realized he was hurt. But I also saw that he had kind of a sense of entitlement and I was taking something away from him. Well, I literally it was Jamie Buckingham, not me. But since I'm in charge of the organization, you know, ultimately I'm responsible for, you know, everything that happens. But I just wanted to tell you that long before we ever heard the name political correctness, long before a lot of this stuff, this man called me a racist. I am not a racist. I wasn't a racist. And I've tried to explain the story. And, you know, I think that it's out of this feeling that, you know, the worst thing somebody calls you is a racist. So now those on the political left, if you don't agree with them, they call you a racist. And now with critical race theory, they're saying that all white people are racist just because they're white. And I would like to say that's not true. It's just not true at all. And in fact, that's a very racist statement to judge a whole group of people by the color of their skin. That's what happened with black people during the Jim Crow era and before. You know, they were judged as, you know, being inferior in some way just because of the color of their skin. Now, they're not inferior at all. I mean, I, you know, people a lot smarter than me have written about it and opined about it. And that's not really the purpose of this podcast. I'm just making the statement. And this last weekend, I was at a Christian conference and they were talking about how seriously evil and divisive and dangerous critical race theory is. And I'm going to study it more. I want to understand more about it. But basically, you know, a 19 project, as it's called, says that America was 
founded to be a slave nation. And apparently the first slaves showed up in Virginia in 1619. This was a year before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth. Interestingly, the pilgrims, who were very strong kind of Calvinist type, you know, they were separatists from the Church of England. They had no slavery. And when a slave ship showed up there a number of years later, they actually sent it on its way and wouldn't let it land. David Barton tells that story very, very well. On the other hand, in Virginia, which was more the Church of England and was throughout the South more than it was in in New England, of course, they're the ones that embraced slavery. And, but America did not invent slavery. In fact, America did not exist back then. You know, the name was probably used, you know, for the New World back then. But slavery was something that's been throughout history, throughout the millennia, not just the centuries. It was the British Empire that had slavery. And as the British settled the New World, they brought slavery with them. And it was a horrible evil. Britain finally got rid of it and with William Wilberforce and all that in the 1830s. We got rid of it with the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, in the 1860s, of course. We fought a bloody civil war to end it. It is the great sin in our country. We have to own up to that. But America was not founded for slavery. It just wasn't. A slavery existed in Brazil, in the islands, The Spanish actually had a different form of slavery in Florida. The slaves under the Spanish had some rights. It wasn't as brutal, but there was a form of slavery. I live not far from St. Augustine, Florida. They talk about this history. And actually, the Spanish traded Cuba for Florida with the British. The British had ended up with Cuba, and the Spanish actually wanted it more than they wanted Florida, and they traded it. And the British... I took over Florida around 1762, give or take a year. And when they did, they brought in the plantation system and they brought in slavery. And this was barely over a decade before the Revolutionary War. And I was surprised as a longtime Floridian to learn that Florida is literally a British colony during the Revolution, never participated in the Revolution, partly because it was a brand new colony. After the war, Florida went back to Spain, and Spain didn't really want it, and it came to the United States in 1821. Now, that's probably more Florida history than you care to know, but I'm interested in this. And what I'm talking about is how slavery was in the British colonies, it was in the Spanish colonies, and, you know, it's a terrible blight. I just wanted to share this story I'll be interested to see what reaction it gets. I may get a lot of criticism. Who knows? I still feel very, very strongly about civil rights issues. I'm concerned that far more black people are incarcerated than white people. Often a white suspect will get off when a black suspect who did basically the same crime, often drug-related, will somehow you know, go to jail In fact, we've done stories about that. I've had long conversations about that, and I've been involved in prison ministries partly because I felt it was a, you know, something positive I could do about all the problems in our prison system. We need reform in our prison system. There's no way around it, and I was very, very happy when Donald Trump 
as president, you know, did some major prison reforms and, and there's much more to be done. But I believe that there are those who wanted to destroy America, who wanted, many of whom want to destroy Christianity, who don't believe in God, who think that biblical values are dangerous in the sense that uh, they don't go along with all, you know, just kind of anything goes in terms of drugs or sexually or politically. And I think it's very, very dangerous. And there are those who are using race tensions in our country to divide us. So I said all that to say that when I first started hearing, probably in the 2000s, people throwing around racist in every other word. In fact, one of my conservative black friends, we will have long discussions about these things, and he pointed out that it was really, uh, up until the Obama administration, you didn't hear everyone called a racist, you know, every minute. And I thought about it, and that's really true. During the Clinton and George Bush administrations, is there racism? Of course. Is there black racism? Of course. Is there white racism? You know, there's racism and prejudice in all groups, but we didn't throw it around all the time. And, you know, that's a subject for a different day, but, you know, something kind of shifted when Obama took over. In fact, you would have thought that America electing a black president would have proven that America is not racist. But instead, it, it almost, you know, as things moved along, it was almost like there was more division between the races. And it's something that I regret. And even within the church, very, very few born-again, spirit-filled churchgoers buy into all of this leftist nonsense. But they do tend to still support the Democratic Party, which has embraced it. You know, I've, if you've read any of my books or even on some of my podcasts, I was a Democrat for over 20 years. I finally left the Democratic Party. And here in Florida, you have to register for one party or the other, or you can't vote in the primaries. And I moved over to the Republican side, reluctantly, I might add, because the Republicans are far from perfect. I don't understand why the Republicans don't reach out to the African-American community more than they do. I've written about that in some of my books as well. But the Democratic Party has moved so far left, it's not even recognizable. It is not the party of John Kennedy, not even the party of Bill Clinton. So anyway, you can see that I feel passionately about this. It's something I've studied. It's something as a journalist that I've lived. I have had hundreds of hours of conversations about this over the years. I really seek to understand. I really want to understand, and I want to continue to build bridges with the platforms that the Lord has given me. We are going to continue to do it. And I just felt after hearing this lecture on critical race theory, that I would tell you about when I was called a racist and sort of understood that in some ways the people on the left is sort of the nastiest thing they can think to call you. And just because they call it to you doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And it's something that I happened to me years ago. I would have to go back in the old issues to even remember exactly when it was, but it was the late 80s. You know, maybe it was 1990. I don't remember for sure. I didn't have to really look it up in order to tell this story. I just wanted to 
tell this story. You know, it, it did not stick as far as I know. Nobody's called me a racist since. But I did understand firsthand that being called a racist doesn't necessarily make you be one. So I'll leave it there. And thank you for listening to my podcast. My new book, Guide in Cancel Culture, actually deals with some of these issues. And you can order it on my own website, stevestrangbooks.com. And that's my name, Steve Strang. No E on the end of Strang. And then there is an S on the end of books. Steve Strang Books, one word, dot com. There's a really cool trailer that the staff, the marketing people just did about the book. You can order all of my books. You can even pre-order it there. You can also pre-order it on Amazon.com, and the pre-orders are starting to come in. I'm starting to get invitations to speak at different conferences and to do some media, even though the book won't be out until September 7th. I've started a new podcast called God and cancel culture. It's basically all of the Strang Report podcasts that deal with the book. I interviewed 22 people. I recorded the interviews and turned the interviews into podcasts, and I'm putting them there to try to draw a different audience. So with that, I'll close and invite you to tune in again tomorrow for another podcast of the Strang Report, the podcast to encourage you to experience the power of the Holy Spirit And I truly believe that only with the power of the Holy Spirit are we going to be able to overcome these inequities in our country, these divisions, and to try to get the country on the right path. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Strang Report with Steve Strang. To read more from Steve, visit his blog, The Strang Report, on charismamag.com. Again, it's The Strang Report on charismamag.com. I'm back in the studio, and I just wanted to encourage you to pre-order my book, God and Cancel Culture. I just finished it this week in terms of going over the typeset version. We called them a galley proofs, or nowadays we call them white pages. It's going to be out the day after Labor Day. We'll actually have copies before then. You can go to my website, stevestrangbooks.com, and pre-order it, or maybe an easier way would be to pre-order it on Amazon.com. They will send it out on release date, September 7th. They don't actually bill you until then. On our own website, we'll send them out as soon as the copies come from the printer, so you decide which you want. But help me get out the word and also get momentum going on this very important book. The early indicators, to me, are very encouraging. Thank you for listening today to my new podcast, God and Cancel Culture.